Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take another close look at the Netflix documentary, Our Father. I wanted a child so bad, but my husband could not have children, so I went to see Dr. Klein for artificial insemination. Today, we're talking to director Lucy Jordan. For decades, Dr. Donald Klein was a respected community member, a pillar of his church, an esteemed physician in fertility medicine. With the growing availability of home DNA testing, many of the adult children conceived at his clinic began to search for relatives of their sperm donor. For Jacoba Ballard, the number of half-siblings was disturbingly high, with new matches coming in all the time. It didn't take too much digging to see these children were all the offspring of Dr. Klein himself. The Netflix documentary, Our Father, explores the journey of Jacoba and her new relatives to get the truth behind their conception. It also looks at their pursuit of justice for the mothers, fathers, and children deceived by Klein's fraud. Though indisputably deplorable, can his actions be called criminal when there's no law against him substituting his own sperm? I don't deny that it was a sexual violation, but legally, it isn't a sexual violation. Lucy Jordan, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much. So how did the story of Donald Klein come your way? So uh, my partner, Michael Petrella, and I back in December of 2017 found the story and we contacted Jacoba the day after the trial. So he'd just been given his $500 fine. We'd seen her do a local news interview and uh, we wanted to tell the story and just talk with her. And we just found it off a, a local what was it, magazine? How did that first conversation with her go? She was, she was kind of confused. She was furious. She was heartbroken. And, uh, you know, these two producers come along and we kind of said, look, there's no justice served here. Could we put it in the court of public opinion? And uh, we told her we'd be completely transparent with her and open through the process and see if we could sell it as a, uh, as a documentary. Now, is it fair to say that Dr. Klein, of course, before all this, was well regarded in his profession, in his community? 
I mean, he was a pioneer in this field. He was really, really well respected and one of the the first to do what he did. You know, laser surgery on tubes. He was um, he was clearing up a lot of issues that were causing infertility and and adored by the community. So, I mean, that's something obviously we don't get into much in the documentary. But he did he do some good work too. I mean, are there people still to this day who would have good things to say about him? I mean, as evidenced in the uh, the letters written to the judge on his behalf, yeah, he's 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 lauded, he's loved by some. I mean, he gave people children. That's yeah. what they wanted. Yeah. So, based on the age of the oldest known half sibling, you know, I guess we can roughly calculate when Klein first started using his own sperm. Do you know when that was? We're right now the the oldest was born in 1972 mm-hmm. and the youngest 1988. Wow. So about my age, actually, the oldest. That's really unbelievable. And 88 would be, what, 30, mid-30s? I didn't know there'd be math. (laughs) (laughs) So this has nothing to do with her actual age, but I was wondering if Jacoba sees herself kind of as a big sister to her half-siblings. I mean, she is leading this effort for accountability. She told me that she is the one who very often initiates contact with people on the on the sites and sort of tells them what's been going on. Do you think she sees herself that way? Um, I think she she's fiercely loyal and she's protective. So if that translates to feeling older, perhaps maybe she, uh, you know, she she's passing that baton. Luckily, as more and more siblings come, others are picking that up for her. So it's not as daunting. Yeah. But yeah, she's she is kind of like that. So we meet Julie Harmon and she's sitting beside her mother, Diana. Um, They also mention how Klein's deception hurt her father. I said, unfortunately, um, Dr. Klein didn't use your sperm. He used his own. So we're just now finding out that Julie is not yours. My husband started crying. He said that, and I'll never forget these words. He says, he's taken everything away from me. Were you trying to show how a whole family is affected on so many different levels here? And can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, a lot of people, a lot of feedback in the in the early years when, you know, 2017, when Klein was uh, given the $500 fine, there were a lot of comments online. They should be lucky that they had a child. You know, it was it was kind of lacking empathy. So it was really important for me in the film is to show the fallout of what he'd done. And it was really interesting. I wanted more fathers in the in the film. And it was so heartbreaking for most of them. They couldn't face a camera. But yes, I, I did want to show everybody infected because it, it was. It's more than just the the sibling born or the the mother. It's the entire core family. I keep thinking about the complicated feelings those fathers must have because obviously they love their kids and they probably don't want to appear like they love them less because they don't share genetic material with them. But the betrayal and the sort of lack of connection must feel just as real as it feels for the kids now knowing that they don't have that genetic connection. But as a parent, you don't want to seem like just because you don't belong to me, quote, like doesn't mean I don't love you. Is that is that kind of where you think some of that's coming from? Absolutely. And there's a real shame around infertility and masculinity. And a lot of this occurred because Klein and, and doctors like him insisted on silence to, to make no one know what was going on. And uh, I think 
all the shame, especially around what it means to be a man, uh, comes up here and, and to balance those feelings and to try and support your child because you love them, but also process your own. It's a lot. So there's one really stunning moment in the film when we meet Allison Kramer. She reveals that not only was Klein her father, but he was also her, in her words, her fertility doctor. He was my main GYN. He took care of all my gynecological needs for the two years that I saw him. He did my pap exams. He did breast exams. I mean, I don't think any grown woman wants someone closely related to them, a member of the opposite sex, to touch them in that way. And the first thing I thought was, is there any chance he ever tried this with her? Did he ever try impregnating her with his own sperm? Is there any indication that anything like that ever occurred? I do not have the answer to that. I don't believe so. I believe she was kind of put on medication. She she wasn't. I don't know if they went through the actual artificial insemination. I don't believe so. It's a shocking moment. It's skin, it's skin crawling. And I think as it comes at the end of the film, it's the final gut punch, I, I feel. It, it shocked me yeah. when she told me. I mean, I, I know how I felt as a viewer, as the filmmaker, being in that room and hearing her say those words. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much you knew before talking to her, but even having her say those words to you in person, what was that like? Um, I would say of every interview that I did uh, ended in tears. We were, it, it was holding the space for, to be that vulnerable, to know that this would be in public and just to be with them um, was just highly charged and I hope that they felt heard with me. I, uh, I I was there for them to tell that story. And it was just, it was intense. You went to so many deeply personal places with all of these subjects. You know, one of the first shots of the film was Jacoba in her bathroom. We see many, many pill bottles at her sink. And you're delving into the siblings' health issues. You know, how, how does that feel as a director? Because that is a very personal layer to be peeling back as well. There were so many facets to to Klein's deception and and the fallout of it, and I think it was it was important for me to plant early on. You know, we don't know why she's taking pills, but just to kind of plant that seed because it's so real for them. You know, the ones with the autoimmune disorders, especially undiagnosed, uh, it's very painful, and it was something I had to show. You know, it's it it's part and parcel of, of his deception was, you know, he was never supposed to be a donor. He never would have been allowed. Mm. And I think that's a really important note in this. You know, sperm gets tested. Uh, donors get tested. You have to, you have to qualify and he wouldn't have qualified. And, and this is, this is the result. This is why you, you have to check who the donor is. Yeah. You know, there's the added layer too of them being autoimmune disorders, which are so difficult to diagnose anyway. And the added layer of that, of how difficult it is for women to deal with the medical community when they have something like an autoimmune disorder. There's just so many layers here. The deception, the difficulty of trusting doctors. I just felt for Jacoba and these women so much, but you also had male siblings dealing with the same kind of thing, right? We did. I mean, Jason, Jason has very similar issues. Um, it's comforting, I think, for them is that they can start to talk with each other and start to figure some stuff out. But it's um, they're heartbroken. This is this isn't just, oh, my dad isn't who my dad is. There's there's so much nuance. There's so much more to it.
Now, when confronted, Dr. Klein would say, you know, there are no more than six. Uh, there are no more than 10. We now know of at least 90, I believe. Um, was he lowballing to hide the number? Or do you think he's lying to himself or that he had truthfully lost count of how many times he had done this? I, uh, I, I, I cannot speak for Klein. And mm. it's actually as evidenced in the film. I can't, um, I didn't want to, try and tackle that. The reason why, why he lied, this was always to be from the victim's perspective because I had a grasp on that. I knew what they were going through and I, I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, it's, is it a pathology, just inability to tell the truth or, or feel like he's going to get caught? I mean, he even lied in court under oath when he said that there was no more than 50. Uh, we know that to be false. Hmm. Did you attempt to get a response from him? Oh yeah, we uh, we called him up. We actually have it on film. He picked up. We told him who we were, and he hung up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's always good to include the hang up. <laughs> I mean, <Yeah>. it's, <laughs> it says a lot, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us about Dr. Robert Culver. I mean, he's not accused of any wrongdoing, but all of these things did happen in his clinic. How much candor did you anticipate from him? I went into that interview uh, without a point of view. I didn't know what would come of it. And I will say that I watched that man in interview fall apart when he started to hear the the depth of Klein's deception. He broke down in tears. He was truly horrified. Now there's a Don Klein we knew, that I knew, that I knew well. And there's the Don Klein I would have never imagined. Yeah, yeah it broke my heart evil. And if Don was right here, I'd say that right to his face. And I don't think personally that was an act. I think he was completely oblivious to the fact this was going on. He didn't know? Wait, wait, he didn't know? He didn't know. And this was somebody who, you know, who was his mentor in a way. I mean, Klein loved this man and he started the interview talking about how he learned how to respect patients with Klein as you always show up on time for a surgery. And it gave me the opportunity to say, well, it's interesting. You talk about respecting patients, given what he did and the horror that came over that man's face. Um, and he didn't know the extent of, you know, how many fathers were supposed to be the donors. Um, and he was just, he was really incredible. He, he was the one who helped us get the archival footage uh, that you see in the beginning. And he gave us all of the instrumentation for the the reenactments with the insemination. He was there. We walked through how it was done. He'd send a video so we knew what we were doing and everything was on point. It was really helpful. And uh, he's there for the siblings now and is still working in Indianapolis as a fertility doctor. Wow. And in fact, some of the siblings have seen him for their own fertility issues. Oh, my goodness. So he's really, yeah. I, he's trying to make good in some ways. He's, I mean, Robert Culver is a, is a fantastic doctor and a good person. And I don't believe he has anything to do with the choices that Klein made. That's incredible. So what do you make of Klein's displays of religious faith? Um, performative, another contradiction in his life, hypocritical. What do you think? I mean, he he speaks in scripture. He brings the same thing up over and over again. I don't know if that is is an intimidation tactic. I I, I don't know the reason why he does it. It it peppers his entire life, his uh, religion. Why I do not know. 
So many documentaries supplement their visuals with recreations by actors. And of course, during the pandemic, we've seen many creative <laughs> versions of that, some animation, um, you know, all sorts of different iterations of that. Um, you do something completely different here. Keith Boyle is great, Dr. Klein. But instead of getting an actor, you also have Jacoba play herself in recreations. Tell me where that idea came from. Jacoba is raw and vulnerable. And if you earn her trust, she'll go along for the ride. And so she had told me at length of all the things that she'd wish she'd said when she first met Klein. And Keith looked so much like him. Um, and I, in speaking to Jacoba, I wanted to, to kind of rework that scene with her in it to see if maybe she could tell those things that she didn't get to say before. And then there was also another reason is, you know, throughout the film, some people have questioned, well, were those siblings in, in the reenactment? Or was it just Jacoba? Like, who was the sibling? And that's kind of the point is that you're always questioning who's a sibling and it kind of makes you feel like she does, is you don't know what reality is. It's this blur and anyone could potentially be a part of the story. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to play with. And Jacoba just, you know, once we tried it with the with the diner scene, which was the first, uh, it just it flowed from there. She was a willing participant in the experiment and she was brilliant. You know, she told me that it was very cathartic for her to sit with him and tell him some of the things that, you know, she never got the chance to tell Dr. Klein. What was it like for you to sit there and, and be there for that? Well, so I've been on board since December 2017. So I have forged quite a relationship with her and I've I've seen so much pain and it was completely exhilarating to watch her argue with an actor and and have these really intense moments. We shot the reenactments with no audio, but I had prepped uh, Keith and told him of all the things Klein had said to her in these meetings. And he played the part with her with no audio and they were able to have this moment and to see this, it felt like a weight off of her shoulders after she had it. It was, it was amazing. She was crying and just letting stuff go through this process. And to be able to do that while also making something entertaining was just, it was, it was beautiful. It seems to me like Keith could, you know, if he wanted to have a sideline traveling the country and let all of Klein's offspring just like yell at him and like have these moments <laughs> I'll give him with a call. Him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying, you know, he should do it for money necessarily, but it could be a therapeutic thing. Maybe he would offer his services to do. I mean, she really did express to me that it helped her a lot. And I've never heard anything like that in any interview I've ever done for this show. So uh, kudos to you for providing her that opportunity. Have you ever had any experience like that ever in any film project you've ever worked on before? No, um, but I've had a lot of therapy. So I feel like there's 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 a world there where you can kind of play. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was amazing to see. You just try and you hope that it's going to work out. And then when it does, like, oh, thank relief. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious at the end of the conversation, did he apologize? Was there some sort of end to it where they were, he was able to sort of bring it full circle for Oh, her? they're in tears hugging, huh. you know, and interestingly, Keith is actually a nurse um, and has been for decades. And so to have his knowledge of the medical field and that world, it was just kind of the strange 
kismet relationship. A lot of stuff like that happened with the actors. One of the actors playing the the detective um, or the the sheriff who comes, he was an actual sheriff, and and it just it was just weird parallels, accidental. Yeah, I always do wonder in some of these true crime series when you cast, and I you know I've 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 been in things with recreations before as a talking head, and I've seen them, of course, many documentaries like this, and I always wonder about the actors who get cast and when they come in and it's like, okay, so here's who you are and then how they feel about being told who they are. And I was feeling for your actor here, Keith, and I was like, oh, this poor man. He came in and he looks so much like this man. And now he has to walk around in the world having been in this Netflix show that millions of people are going to see. I mean, I did send an apology when that Times Square <laughs> billboard came out. So just, just so you know, <laughs> he's, he's great with it. He's thrilled. Yeah. And uh, it's very exciting for him, thankfully. Yeah. So in one scene, Jacoba is at a computer printing off documents and she has this whole like homeland style wall of articles and photographs and sticky notes. Did she really have a wall like that or was that for the film? She had a wall like that. Really? That wasn't her wall, but she did. Yeah, that was all based on on where she was coming from. And, you know, it's it's when you print out something and a lot of stuff, you know, we talk about it in the film, uh, Julie and, and Jacoba, files were erased uh, from their computers, from their phones. So it became for her printing out things was the best way to keep them because they kept disappearing online. So how much of the research she had done and the footwork she had done help you as a as a documentarian when you were sort of putting together, you know, your outlines and, and your research for your film? Were you able to sort of retrace some of her steps? Yeah, we we verified some things, but generally this wanted I wanted this to be their investigation. I didn't want to add to it. I wanted to show this is from their point of view, right? And so when Klein doesn't give them any information, uh, they're left kind of digging around, going to newspapers.com, trying to find anything that links them to this man and they so they can understand it better. And so I wanted it to be her investigation and the siblings and their journey. So yeah, it informed it informed the documentary only because it was part of her. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I was thinking about a lot when I was watching this and that gets talked about a little bit is this community and all of these people who live there. And you have a visual of somebody walking down the street and sort of looking around at potentially, you know, are these people potentially in my family? I, I don't know. Are there known incidents of people knowing each other, perhaps encountering each other, having relationships with each other who may or may not have been related, cousins, you know, that kind of thing. Do you know if anything like that has come about because of this I, story? I, there were there were siblings who were in a dorm together and didn't <sighs> know it. Hmm. I mean, this is so many of them went to Indiana University. I mean, it is the problem is real. You know, are there cases of incest? Not that we know of, thankfully, but I'm. I believe that now this documentary is out, people will start actively testing. And I think the numbers are going to to climb. And uh, in a a town that small, who knows? Documentarians and investigative journalists, you know, you share some of the same DNA, figuratively, of course. So help me get into Angela Gnot's head. What was it that made her want to pursue this story when so many others passed it over? I mean, I was with Angela. I, I was as appalled as she was. I read a lot of the um, messages that Jacoba had sent out to the media, kind of a call to action. And I'm shocked that that only one person saw it 
as as relevant. And, you know, Angela and I were on the same page. And when I met her, she was just, she wanted answers. Asking the attorney general for an interview, asking anything that I could know about this, and they would tell me nothing. And then I also reached out to the Marion County prosecutor and said, is anyone listening? And this is her her community. These are her people. And she just wanted to do that for Jacoba, not knowing what she would uncover and not knowing how infuriating it would be and the amount of closed doors. Hmm. I mean, she, she was not getting answers. It wasn't just Jacoba. It felt as though they were ignoring or maybe actively trying to silence. I don't know. She was incredible, though. Do you think, you know, I can't help but think this whenever I see a story like this, that there was a component of sexism involved here because there were so many women pursuing this because Jacoba was pursuing this, that it's like, you know, here we go. Some ladies want us to do a thing. I mean, I can't help but think that whenever I see a story like this, that, you know, women are dogged and pursuing the truth and, you know, sort of like the journalistic powers that be are just like, ah. You know what? We have we have real work to do, ladies. Yeah, it is. It's a boys club from, you know, media. And then you go through government. I mean, that's who that's who this has to get by. And I think there's absolutely a level of sexism. I mean, we feel that because we're women who get it. It's, you know, it's yes, I do believe that. And this whole story is so infused with that because we, we're also talking about uh, medicine that is designed to help women, right? And any woman who's ever been to an OBGYN knows that like medicine was not designed for us, right? Like we go through medical procedures with no anesthesia, for instance. You know, I always, I always think that like if men did what we did, they wouldn't, they'd be like, what? You do what with no, <laughs> you know what I mean? So this whole story is so infused used with so many of those elements. When you were making it, were you sort of thinking through that feminist lens? I mean, this is to me has always been a story of consent. And the fact that people are having the conversations now that they are is exactly what I had hoped is that you can watch this and say, okay, that's wrong. What he did was wrong. She should have been able to have a choice over her body. And I say, yeah, absolutely. So let's take that further. What does that look like? And and th- these are the conversations being had. But a feminist lens, yes, this is this is about women. And I think it's why I go. It's not graphic, but in the reenactments, when we go into the um, the exam room, men don't know what that's like. Right? They don't know. You know, you say you're raped 15 times and didn't know it without a visual cue. You wouldn't necessarily understand. But now that you see that we're in there with no underwear on, our legs spread in stirrups, waiting for a doctor to come in who we trust. And it really helps kind of frame the the violation. And it is one that's unique to us. Yeah. You know, it gets pointed out in your film that even though he needed to masturbate in private away from the patient, there was a sexual component to these procedures this means a sexual crime occurred. I mean, I, I think it does. What do you think? I mean, the the great thing about it is, is to have no point of view. Like, what do you think? And and that's, that's what I wanted mm. people to have this discussion. Do I personally believe it was a sexual violation? Yes. If you are in a state of arousal, you ejaculate, you come back into that room, you are, you're flushed, you're feeling the effects of that. And now you're, you're inseminating. I think it's, absolutely sexual. How can it not be? I think, you know, when I, the opening of the film is 
done for a reason, you know, Klein. And when you hear about it in the media, it was always, well, he donated his sample. And that always irked me because it just, yeah, donated his sample. It's just, oh, oh, you donated your sample. That's so great. And then I want you to know what that is. What is donating a sample? I'm going to show you off the bat because it's sexual. Yeah. Well, he didn't donate it. He foisted it upon them. You know, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. like, would you like this? It wasn't an ask and you shall receive Which is situation. The whole point. Yeah. You know, hey, yeah. don't have a donor available. Would you like me to to offer a sample? All right. he had to do was ask. And I guarantee you, of all the mothers I've spoken to, no one would have said yes. Of course not. Of course they wouldn't have weird. said yes. <laughs> it, it is weird. They want an anonymous medical student, not the man standing right in front of them. Like, that's how or, this you used know, to work. their husband. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that is how this whole thing was supposed to work. <sighs> Now, at some point, the siblings turned to criminal prosecutor Tim Delaney for relief. Jacoba and a lot of the individuals touched by this were very emotional and had um, a feeling that what I was there to do wasn't to apply the law to determine whether or not Dr. Klein had committed a crime. They thought I was there to deliver catharsis, and I wasn't. He tells them there's no law on the books he can charge him with, Klein with. In other words, he agreed Klein's behavior was dastardly, but there were no legal remedies on the books he could employ. Now, technically, he's not wrong, right? Yeah, you know, Jody Madeira in the the film, The Law Professor, she had an interesting kind of way in that she she might have, have done differently. I don't know. I, I feel like there was fear. You know, initially, Klein pled not guilty. And so... Tim Delaney had to kind of see this through the lens of would a jury believe that this was rape? And there were other cases that he'd just come off of um, in Indiana that said that jurors won't, weren't willing to buy rape by deception. And I think he had to weigh that. And then uh, when Klein changed it to guilty for obstruction, I mean, that was that's that's all that he got. I I fail. I think there was something else, but I'm not a legal expert at all, unfortunately. Yeah. So I can't speak to it really. When, when I hear that, when I hear that, it's sort of more about whether or not he could have won. I just think about the criminal justice system and how it is adversarial and it is about wins and losses and less about the pursuit of justice, which, of course, is what Jacoba said she wanted. She said she wanted justice. But Delaney says she's looking for catharsis. Um, what did you make of that? Because that really struck me. You know, your interviews with him, he's he's very candid. He's very open to sort of about process and, the, and sort of the legal machinations of this case. And, you know, he's very matter of fact about it when he says that. What did you make of that? Well, it's interesting, right? You do have to separate emotionality when you're dealing with these things. Uh, and he did that quite well. But I don't believe they ever wanted catharsis from him. They wanted someone to listen and to to really figure out ways to prosecute. And I think they felt that it was was fallen on deaf ears, that he had already made a decision. And it was really Angela Gannot who served it up on a silver platter. Like, this is how you could get him. It was her who kind of laid it out for him that she had been lied to by Klein and knew that Klein had lied to the attorney general. And that's how they found this. Otherwise, nothing would have been done, I don't believe. In the end, they can't charge Klein with using his own sperm. The best they can do is charge him with lying about it on an official document. 
Is there a chance the siblings could find relief in civil court or do, or do they face the same challenges given the vagueness of the law? There have been civil suits that uh, recently just got made public. Uh, there's, you know, they can't speak to it. There's certain laws in Indiana. So I can't, I don't know the details of any mm. of it. Um, they can. My hope has always been that some hotshot lawyer sees this film and figures out another way in. Yeah. Oh, you know, that would be great. That would be great. Yeah. Part two our, <laughs> of the film would be pursuing that. Since Our Father debuted earlier this month, have there been any more developments in this case or this story? There have been new siblings, yes. Hmm. We learn that 40 physicians have been identified as having used their own sperm. What is the glitch in the matrix that draws doctors to break their oaths and do this, you think? Yeah, what was going on in the 70s and 80s? Did they all get together and have this conversation? Like, if you're running out of sperm, you can use your own. I don't, I don't understand how this occurred, um, the, the amount of people who've done it, but they all seem to be from the same cloth, so to speak. They're, they're white males who lean evangelical for the most part. That's not all of them, but they mm. do. Yeah. And they, and who didn't think they would get caught? So there's a power thing there, right? There's a power thing. You know, is it looking back, especially at the time, fresh sperm, you know, sperm starts dying off very, very quickly. And so I think there was this thought that this is this is the freshest, most viable sperm is this, the sperm that's closest to when we have sex, right? So I think next door, it just comes right in. You know, was it to get your numbers up so you are the best, best fertility doctor? So you can, there's something, but I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know why. And I don't know if they saw it as a violation. Yeah. You know, there's a doctor practicing now in Texas who still has his medical license who is known to have done this. Yeah. There's, where are the ramifications? I recently learned, too, that when the doctor who invented the process uh, for freezing sperm wanted to get that process done and, like, have it be something that was available, there was a lot of re religious objection to it. So there is this idea of unnaturalness around it not, you know, c c you know, being quote unquote fresh and come maybe that's a component to it. I mean, Klein's actual motivations are so unclear. And, you know, I have a question for you about that. There was this talk about this quiverful religious cult, his own sexual gratification. Someone even noted the Aryan implications of spawning so many blonde haired, blue eyed children. You've lived with these questions for a long time. What do you think hits closest to the mark for Dr. Klein? It was, it was really frustrating not having those answers. But again, I was going on the journey from the point of view of the siblings. So this is what they had uncovered. You know, there's interesting parallels when you're, when you're quoting scripture that is known to be quoted by this particular group. You know, I, I don't have answers. It's all very interesting. And I think there's this kind of chaos when you're, when you find out this is your father then anything can be possible because this thing is so ridiculous and so difficult to understand that you can really just allow your brain to go all over the place and come up with anything to try and make sense of it. Because if this can be real, then anything can. And, you know, I, I will not speak to, do I think he's in, you know, some religious movement? I, I just don't know. And, and I have to leave it at that. I, it's, it's, it's a question that remains. And if he only spoke. Yeah. 
So, Lucy, you told me that you saw Jacoba's story. You reached out to her and your mission here was to get it out there to the world. And now it is out there on Netflix and millions of people are watching it and everyone is talking about it on social media. And I have to wonder, what is that like for you that this has happened now and that people are watching this story and talking about it and like dissecting the details of it and wanting to know more? How does that feel for you now? It's... It's incredible. You know, you make a promise to people, especially in this world. I've been I've been in this this particular part of entertainment for many, many, many years. And you make promises to people and you hope that you can keep it. And so when we said to Jacoba we would get this out there in the court of public opinion, this was the dream. And you you know, to actually achieve it and and to to make good on your word is incredibly fulfilling. But then the second part and having all these people talk about what is consent? What is sexual assault? Can rape have all of these different definitions? Suddenly women are thrust into this, into the zeitgeist in a new way. And you understand that there's pain. You understand that this is not okay. And that to me is the biggest gift. And we just found out that, you know, some senators had seen the film and now they're working on a federal Bill, I mean, to have entertainment not only entertain but to to do good is my dream, and I am, I am shocked and thrilled, and just it's very exciting. Well, it entertained me, and I also haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Our father, it's truly incredible, Lucy Jordan. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about it, and thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Lucy Jordan. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.